0: AVXL episode 160 was recorded on November 12th, 2021. HDMI cable testing, more Marvel aspect ratio fun. CES might actually be a thing. More headphones from Monoprice and some major help making rooms sound better. All that and so much more coming up. Don't forget to email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you that support us at patreon.com slash avxl. Your monthly contributions make the show possible. And don't forget, next hangout for our patrons is Sunday, November 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We usually start the show off with whatever we're really excited about. And Robert and I were just freaking out. Uh, I caught this when uh, JJ4884 posted on patreon.com slash AVXL with a simple, short message. LTT HDMI cable testing video and a link. And the link was to uh, Linus Tech Tips. He bought a $15,000 total phase advanced cable tester V2 or was loaned one or whatever. I don't care because the next thing he did was pick up like $1,000 worth of HDMI cables. Uh, And my next note in the script is hilarity ensues. I won't get deep into it because Linus did the work, so his video should get the views. And I'm pretty sure everyone listening can find a video on YouTube at this point. Um, Exactly. But to uh, nine of the 53 cables failed. Three of the brands that failed included Monoprice, Amazon Basics, and shockingly, Belkin. A bunch of the Amazon Basic cables that were tested were rated for 2.0, but past 2.1 testing, which I thought was impressive. He answers questions such as, are expensive cables better? Is HDMI 2.1 problematic with cables longer than 10 feet? What is this jitter thing that they always talk about when you're looking at audiophile cable manufacturers selling incredibly expensive HDMI cables? Um, And they also, they put a full data dump if you want to nerd out. It's a sweet piece of info. It's really good. It's a really good, uh, uh, it's really good to watch. Uh, It's really frustrating to watch if you've ever had HDMI cable problems. And he also asked his audience if the Linus Tech Tips crew wants him to uh, spend money and secret Santa buy, uh, spend the audiophile... Uh, i believe they use the phrase snake oil cables uh, or maybe i just thought the word snake oil cables but it is uh it is an interesting video and it is really depressing to see how many cables don't pass at 2.1 specs uh, and or is it not it's not like all of us or even many of us are doing 4k 120 video true no maybe
1: true well two things one, I totally want one of those $15,000 HDMI cable testers. (laughs) I would like someone to create a similar device, maybe not with all of the functionality, but with that base functionality for testing up to 4K 120 in a handheld device, at an affordable price would be very good. Otherwise, my immediate thought was I would pay probably five bucks a cable to have it certified to whatever spec, it, or at least know what the spec of that cable is before I actually use it and see it on a, uh, a test sheet that's included with it, a data sheet. The other thing is, like you said, when you're dealing with 4K 120, mm-hmm. that's where the big failures will occur. In particular, anything over 10 feet, it becomes problematic with regular copper cables, I wouldn't even chance it with a 15 footer, but at six feet, even some of the value brands were doing very well. And that seemed yeah. to be the safest length, or you could say <laughs> a, a two meter cable is the safest link to truly do 4k 120 with. If you can't actually test it. Now, if you, are going to go and exceed you know, 10, 15 feet, or you simply need right. it for maybe a wall installation or a, just a distance installation with true 4K120 going to compatible equipment, then I would be looking more toward active cables for sure. And in particular, something that is literally certified AK60 4K120 and go from there. Although that's a challenging shopping scenario in and of itself. If you go searching around, you'll see price is kind of all over the place for quote unquote certified cables at the popular lengths you may desire. It makes it kind of difficult to, you know, weed through the reviews and pick the best product. (laughs) However, I did order one from a company called Cable Matters, and I'll be getting that in for testing. It is one of the more value priced cables that is apparently 8K60 certified. And I'll report back when I get that in for a
0: crazy speeds, a little
1: hands on time. I realized for my testing devices, uh, generally speaking, when I'm calibrating systems, my output devices all the way up to 4K 60 with RGB color, that's 18 gigabit. Uh, It doesn't really ever exceed
0: that even with HDR. One of the things I think it's worth pointing out is a lot of the fails on these cables were actually, you know, there's 19 wires in a cable and a lot of these fails were actually related to the wires being soldered to the wrong ports on the HDMI bit at the end. Yeah. If the interconnects aren't properly assembled, yeah. Yeah, you're you're losing right
1: out of the <laughs> gate on on that one. One nice thing, though, if you're going to have a cable failure, and Linus pointed this out in the video, it's typically an all-or-nothing scenario. You either get a picture that works properly, or you may
0: see some sparkling in the picture itself if there's actual damage. I have eliminated sparkle by replacing HDMI cables. But that's part of what they point out in the discussion of jitter, is that jitter can create problems with the bits being passed through properly. And if there's too much jitter... You know, you can get sparkles or more likely, as you're saying, there'll be a total signal failure. But it's not like your audio is going to be magnificent yeah, because you spent $700 on an (laughs) HDMI cable. Um,
1: It becomes a timing issue if you get bad enough jitter, for sure. And like you said, if you do see sparkles in your picture, literally white sparkle patterns appearing in that signal, which you believe should be clean otherwise... Then you should immediately suspect the cable or the cable is the primary suspect and go ahead and replace that with something relatively right. affordable. He did mention a brand at toward the end of the video called InfiniteCables.com and they seem to do proper testing on their cables. And as far as their copper-based cables go, they don't even sell a true AK-60 4K120 cable longer than 10 feet or about 3 meters. So, keep that in mind, <laughs> I think because they have found very few, if any, that are longer than that, say fifteen, twenty thirty feet or longer, that can actually pass that signal properly without being some form of an amplified or optical cable right
0: A lot going on, cool stuff though, interesting to, yeah, and that part of the reason that that cable tester is is $15,000 is because it's designed to use uh, different modules. So you can test HDMI cables with it. You can test USB-C cables with it. You can test lightning cables with it, um, DisplayPort cables. You know, so it's uh, you buy additional sets of modules. It's a commercial unit for sure. Right. That it most certainly is. Moving on, you had some follow-ups for uh, aspects ratios in relation to our IMAX enhanced conversation. Uh, with Marble's announcements. Totally. I just want to apologize. At
1: no point do I believe I ever said that 16 by 9 is about a 1.78 to 1 aspect ratio. We kept just simply (laughs) referring to 16 by 9 and 1.9. It may have become a little confusing. So 16 by 9, if you do the math on that, is 1 with a bunch of 7s after the decimal point, rounded up to 1.78 generally. And we were comparing that to 1.9 to 1. One being the screen height scaled to one. And so you can compare 1.78 and 1.9 as just looking at the width of the picture. And since 1.9 is a little bit wider, it's going right. to then require very, very thin black bars compared to 16 by nine at the top and the bottom of the picture. And that's it. And
0: just a quickie follow up. Well, I mean, you know, screen width to height. Don't forget to say the one, Patrick. <laughs> And don't repeatedly
1: compare a fraction, in my case, 16 by 9, and then comparing that to something like 1.78 to 1, or Uh. not even mentioning 1.78 to 1 is what 16 by 9 is, and then comparing that to 1.9. Anyway, I'll make it even more confusing if I keep talking, so I'll stop right there.
0: I was watching some Avengers movies last night in the new IMAX enhanced ratio. Ooh. And I will say I'm digging the extra screen and I can confirm the tiny bars above and below. Uh, I can also confirm it's a little odd to pan up and down more than uh, left to right. right? Because you watch a typical 2.39 to 1, i.e. a traditional widescreen cinematic presentation we see so often on Blu-rays. Or as I wrote here, because I'm a genius, the traditional wide-ass epic ratio. <laughs> Please, somebody play Ben Hur. Um, the uh, but it, it's it's interesting to have all of that vertical space filled. Your eye moves definitely on the screen, so it's it's a slightly different experience. It'll be interesting to sort of sort of screen capture between the two ratios or the two different presentations to kind of see how it changes the composition within the frame. If I want to dig into my,
1: have you ever thought about going like with a two thirty five to one screen for doing the widescreen presentations without black bars and then simply, I guess, masking it on the left and the right for when you go 16 by nine with that same screen.
0: At the moment, I'm, uh, I'm very pleased with my current cinematic setup and because I do not want to end up being beaten to death, uh, with the dog for doing terrible, complicated things, uh, at some point, it might be nice to do that, but that would be a very, it, it would be a more complicated and expensive experience that I'm willing to uh, to go on at this point. <laughs> I guess know. my
1: question would be more, does your projector actually support lens presets that would allow you to do that pretty easily? That's the one thing. I, if you are going to consider ever of doing head, that, I don't know. do check the specs of your projector to see if you'll be doing some manual adjustments going back and forth, <laughs> or can you do a couple of quick presets to have that projector zoom and focus for both of those
0: formats more automatically or upon detection of the content itself. It's funny you should mention that because you're thinking of the projector and I'm automatically thinking of all of the complicated projection screen masking stuff at the other end of the, you know, you're thinking of where the picture comes from, I'm I'm thinking about where the picture hits and how complicated it can be to set all of that up. I was at the Source AV in in Torrance, California and uh you know jason lord showed me their their sort of super fanciest room and it does that kind of stuff where you know masking drops down or comes into pacing depending, depending on the aspect ratio of what you're watching and I'm, on one hand i love that but on the other hand i think it would cost more than i paid for my truck to implement it in my home so i've never even really thought about it if you have a light controlled
1: room i find lots of folks just going without masking for the sides of that screen style of two three five to one say uh, and not even worrying about the left and the right when it goes to sixteen by nine, as long as you can do it effectively with lens presets to where you can simply scale the the ten eighty p image right. properly, where it will not fill the whole screen. And then when it goes into movie mode or anything that's widescreen, it will simply scale it properly and fill the whole screen at that point. I'm always impressed when folks go with two thirty five to one screens, but I, the practical sure. side of it for TV and game consoles and everything else it's all 16 by nine optimized
0: for the most part already. So it, it does yeah, make it convenient. I'm also just, my brain is just now turning on that. You're thinking of having a great big wide screen and then correct, you know? Yeah. I, I'm always going for the complicated and sophisticated. Oh yeah. Me complicated and sophisticated solutions. Um, Speaking of which, CES 2022, I think might actually be a thing. If nothing else, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing a lot from various people about whether or not they're going to be going or not going or, or displaying or not displaying. But uh, I thought it was interesting that Samsung and the CTA, uh, which is CES parents organization, announced this week that Samsung's Zhong Hee Han, the president and head of the display division, will give a final pre-show keynote on January 4th, uh, which is the basically the night before the exhibition floors open. Samsung says the keynote for CES 2022 will present the company's vision for an age of togetherness, meaning that technology needs to exist together with people and for the planet. The keynote is a call to action to mitigate climate change, and the company will show how everyone can do their part in building a sustainable planet. It will also present how customized and connected experiences will enrich people's lives, which part of me is like, this is interesting. And part of me is like, oh, this is why I need to, my, my washing machine needs to be able to talk to my refrigerator, which needs to be able to track me down anywhere I am on the surface of the planet. In any case, I think I did. Uh, dig into the exhibitors directory and it's you know samsung's got a couple of big rooms in the center hall and and it looks like a lot of people are actually planning on going to ces so uh we wait with bated breath i would like to see uh, some great big new televisions up close rather than seeing pictures of them that would be nice i know you don't like to look at televisions robert no
1: not at all <laughs> Quantum.OLED with the head of the display division giving the presentation. (laughs) That's just awesome. Just awesome. I have to actually go back from previous visits I've had with Samsung. I want to say I've had dinner with Mr. Han and we had a great evening, I believe. And it was just nice (laughs) to see him get promoted. And hopefully, come on, baby. Bring me that quantum dot OLED technology, and uh, or something even more impressive. That's the other thing too. The one great thing for me about Samsung at CES typically is they have an advanced technology demo at some point. That's not on the show floor, but yeah. you can't. I don't be get into that room. <laughs> that can be a lot of fun because you usually get to interact with some of the display engineers, in addition to the right. PR people, and and you usually get to see some pretty
0: interesting pixels, so to speak. So. Curious the worst things and seeing pretty pixels. Heck yeah. yeah. Uh, so we talked a bunch about the MonoPrices M565C. It's Planar Magnetic. It's a favorite uh, one of my favorite headphones. Um, it's fantastic. So it dips a few DB between 320 Hertz, but for 170, 200 bucks on Amazon or Monoprice.com, it's a really good deal. It's a fantastic closed back headphone, it delivers more bass than a lot of the other planar magnetics in that price range. The uh, M1060, which is their open-back planar magnetic, has also gotten a bunch of good reviews from folks I respect. It measures pretty much flat from 20 hertz to 500 hertz. Uh, you know, it's the the low end is vastly better than the HiFiMan's uh, uh, HE400s. Not all of uh, Monoprice's headphones have been glorious. The uh, I think it was the M560 had removable caps. The idea was you would be able to like pull the caps off to make it open and get that glorious sound stage. And then you could put the caps back on to convert them to close. He so wouldn't irritate people in an office. It, it's, it was a mess in either configuration. But that's probably the last really bad planar magnetic, or maybe the only bad planar magnetic I've ever heard from Monoprice. Uh, I also will say that some of the design elements and some of their headphones have been Definitely influenced by other high-end headphone manufacturers. Um, and I, I mention all of this because Monoprice just announced, uh, out of nowhere, three new monolith headphones. The $400 M1070C, the $600 M1570C, uh, which are both over-ear, closed-back planar headphones. Uh, similar to the M565C, but with much, much larger planar drivers, and uh, which means they can move more air. And uh, so I'm very, very curious to hear those. 1570C, they do additional QC and hand-selected driver for those. They also have an XLR connector, which is where the, the price delta between those two comes from. And uh, I was also really shocked that there is a Monolith by Monoprice AMT headphone now, which at $1,000 sounds spendy because $1,000 is a lot of money for headphones, uh, but we love air motion transformers. And these reek of being a more affordable take on the Heinz electronic or electrodynamic design uh, or the head headphone, which those started selling uh, a while back for about $2,500. They're currently available for about $1,500. Um The uh, Monoprice's AMT headphones are not going to be as flat in the base uh, as I expect the the, uh, 1070 and the 1570C to be, Um, but uh, I will be very, very curious to hear these because they're literally a pair of AMT drivers built into headphones. Right. They are very heavy. Uh, whether you're looking at the original Heinz electronic, Electrodynamic Design headphone, or if you're looking at Monoprice's AMT headphones, we're talking about 24 ounces, which is more than a pound sitting on your head. So you're probably going to want a big, thick neck to go with these. Or an assistant. Yeah. <laughs> Some sort of suspension system. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the nice things about Monoprice is they're doing a, a five-year warranty on all these and uh, they also make it easy to. If you have replacement ear pads, they make it easy to swap. They're not glued-on ear pads, so they should be easy to replace. If you use them so much, you wear them out. So
1: that's pretty crazy. They're doing air motion transformers in headphones. Uh, I, I typically associate that with something like a tweeter in a standalone speaker system. Yeah, it's interesting. I. Kind of want to hear it. And then I'll probably immediately go, oh, my goodness, these are heavy. But uh, I still (laughs) want to hear how
0: they sound. (laughs) Well, I mean, Heinz originated the AMT design. And part of the reason we started seeing air motion transformers everywhere a few years ago is because their original patent ran out. And this is something they've been experimenting with. Gotcha. And now Monoprice is experimenting with their own take on an AMT-packed headphone other thing Monolith announced this week, because they are on a roll, is uh, their new Encore line of home theater speakers. The B6 bookshelf, the T6 tower, the C6 center channel. They started at $179 each for the bookshelf speakers. And I want to say the center channel is $249. 25-millimeter silk dome tweeter, 6.5-inch woofers. Uh, a very interesting wave guide for the tweeter that reminds me of uh, horn tweeters. These are not horns, but uh, they remind me of horns. And uh, looking at the frequency response they published for these, they are very, very flat. They're like plus or minus 3 dB down to 49 hertz, I think it says. But they look incredibly flat down to 100 hertz or or close to where you would do a crossover with a subwoofer. And I am very curious to hear those in the real world. So, Price is right. Yeah. Those would be uh, significantly less expensive than the... uh, Elac debuts we like so much, and move a lot more air than the Polk Signature Series that is, uh, I think, Wirecutter's pick for a super affordable home theater speaker. So I'm always, I'm happy, you know, to always have more options. Without a doubt.
1: (laughs) And sometimes a bookshelf speaker is exactly what you need, and it's nice to see more better options. I'm, I'm really curious to hear how that Waveguide tech they're using actually sounds, because... Flat frequency response is pretty nice to see in something that
0: small. It is.
1: Hey, I wanted to follow up real quick with my Wi-Fi upgrade experience. Uh, Last week, I talked about us blowing through our data cap here in the place I'm living. And (laughs) once we straightened that out, and that included upgrading the modem itself to support the new high speed, I needed a new Wi-Fi router. And I decided since I'm doing this upgrade anyway, it may as well be Wi-Fi 6 compatible I ended up going with something on the value side called the TP-Link Archer AX55. Confusingly, it is listed as the AX3000, which is the same as the AX50 model that it replaces. I say if you're shopping for a device like this, you may as well get the latest generation. So skip the AX50, get the AX55. You're getting new hardware with a couple extra features that you may appreciate down the road. Now, that single router didn't cover our home the way our previous mesh network did. So I went and picked up an extender for it. And I, again, went with a TP-Link product. In this case, I went with the AX1500, also known as the RE500X. That is a Wi-Fi 6 extender that'll work with pretty much any router out there. But, of course, it ties in quite nicely with TP-Link routers as well. Now, the total cost for all of this hardware for the, the router itself, which is gigabit Ethernet, if you care. And it also has Wi-Fi 6 built in and the extender too. All of that for less than $250. And we have nice coverage now on the property and very good wireless performance with our currently 800 megabit service. Now, I was comparing this to something like any pretty much any other Wi-Fi 6 gear out there and this seems to be a terrific value, but we'll see how it functions over the long term. I literally have had all this running for maybe a week now or two, So it's still early in the game. But uh, refreshingly, I was able to do the setup of both the router and the extender using a web browser. I didn't bother Mm -hmm. with the app that TP-Link has because I didn't need any of the specific features it had related to monitoring or being able to block specific websites for specific family members or children and things like that. Those functions, I do not believe, are available through the web interface, through a browser. But like I said, I didn't need it, so I was able to do all the other configuration, updating, and just seeing how it's all performing from the comfort of my regular browser with a wired connection or a wireless connection in this case now. When I built the workstation I'm using now, it turns out that the motherboard I have supports Wi-Fi 6 built into it. So this is literally the first time I've had a chance to actually use it at full speed. And so far, I am thrilled. I'm getting more performance than I practically need. And we're getting full strength all around the property, which is win-win so
0: <laughs> I'm happy I like it when the internet works
1: I'll be a lot happier if I can report this same level of quality in a say you know six months to a year it's uh it's <laughs> all early in the honeymoon so to speak or <laughs> as far as my relationship with the new hardware but so far so good oh another oh, problem we ran into. Uh, or And it's kind of on topic for a lot of us. There was a major outage with Xfinity Comcast last week. Uh, I believe it was Monday night. It started in the Bay Area, but it quickly spread throughout the United States. And guess what? We had set up our new doxus 3 modem with the service, and then that happened. And then I swear, it. I think they had to go to a backup or something on Xfinity's end because suddenly it had switched back to our previous hardware. And things were funky for a while there until we realized that's what had happened. So we had to manually go back in, swap out the modem again, and get the business after that. But that was a significant outage. We had full blown outage for a few hours, which in a modern household, it was uh, kind of refreshing. <laughs> forever. It was. It was very quiet. <laughs> Did anyway. you enjoy the quiet? But do double-check those kind of things, too, if you are fully doing it yourself and upgrading all the hardware. Make sure that the provider has an accurate list of what gear you're using if that needs to be the case. In the case for us, it was a a modem we own using it with their service and making sure it's registered properly. And it was, but then it wasn't. And now it is. So, done.
0: (laughs) I just wanted to work,
1: people. Please. I want fiber. Uh, we have no fiber options in our hood, so Wah. <laughs> poor me. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm not gonna one tell day. you what one day what we get and what we pay for it. Uh capsella is fifty metal wireless two gets Amazon Music. And it's interesting to see Amazon Music uh starting to show up in more places. Still no signs but on Rune Labs. Uh that's still uh title in and, and your iTunes library and your uh whatever you have stored on internal, external hard drives or your NAS. I will be curious to see if it shows up. Like Spotify is never going to work on Rude Labs because of Spotify. But uh, I'm kind of curious to see if uh, Amazon Music shows up there. Other note, YouTube creators announced this week that uh, they had had an experiment earlier this year with making the dislike count private. And that was based on smaller patrons being attacked essentially with or pounded with dislikes and uh you know what they call targeted dislike attacks and i mention this because robert and i both watch a lot of how-to youtube videos and i as they as they kind of strip these away and make them only visible to creators i am curious to see how it impacts my ability to quickly find the best uh, diy or how-to or hands-on video uh, on a on a product, because I, I have, uh, you know, skipped videos because there were 233 dislikes and, like, three likes, and uh, uh, I'm kind of curious to see how that goes long-term for YouTube. They are not going to get rid of the rage-posting comments below the videos, but... <laughs> or apparently the bots that take over the comments,
1: which seems to be probably one of the biggest problems a lot of people are facing with their... With their presentations on YouTube, it's just occasionally you're being flooded with crazy bot comments and there's no easy way to deal with that. Although if you Google search that, you'll see one of the popular YouTube creators actually wrote a program that will actually go through your videos and nuke those comments for you in an automated fashion, which is hopefully something the folks at YouTube will take a look at and perhaps implement something similar built right in where you don't have to go through a, a quote unquote third party. Even a well-meaning third
0: party. (laughs) But it's there if you need it. You got a great question from Preston I kind of started digging into. He's looking to make his home theater room sound better. It's small, really small, like 7 by 10. And that's okay because a lot of the basics of tuning your room or making things sound better or eliminating reflections work in any size room. And a lot of people are going to tell you that small rooms can't have bass because waves and standing waves and things. And I'm just going to say the competitive car stereo folks would like to debate this with you. Um, There are problems, uh, you know, with tuning any room of any size, but Prestige rooms, particularly interesting, right? Flat ceiling, rectangular shape. So it's not the worst possible shape, which would be a a square or a cube, I should say. But, you know, rectangles don't make anything easier. Uh, All the walls are made of wood panel which basically means it's a hard surface going to reflect high frequencies. Uh, And then he installed 140 acoustic panels uh, that are 12 by 12 and 2 inch thick. He has carpet on the flooring. So he's absorbing a huge amount of acoustical energy inside of this room. He said, I'd noticed a big difference in sound deadening in the room after the install. And he attached a spectral graph of the room acoustics with the door shut. Uh, He ran in like a frequency sweep from like 10 or 20 hertz up to... 20,000 Hertz, whatever it is. Um, and, uh, you know, he recorded it through a Dayton audio IMM six microphone. The graph was, it's a, it's a 20 Hertz to one Hertz sweep for five seconds. And, uh, and, uh, you know, he said there were peaks and dips and sound phases moving all over the room. And he said, this is when I felt I have a problem with really bad acoustics in the room. And I don't know the next step to take. Uh, and he says, the only information he has so far as small rooms have very bad acoustics and, You know, all rooms can have very bad acoustics. My theory at this point is the smaller the room is, the more dramatic the impact that changing things in the room has, right? Because you have such a small volume of air to work with and the walls are so close together that reflections get out of control really quickly. My first thought is that you actually might have made the room too dead by putting too many panels up. Uh, the goal is like you want a bit live, but you want to eliminate those slap back echoes or, and you want to deal with first order reflections as in that first point where the, the audio from the speaker hits the floor or the ceiling or the sidewall. The uh, acoustical panels, the problem is they tend to absorb all of the high frequency energy because when you look at his uh, spectral reading, he's got a lot of energy from like 30, 40 hertz or 50 hertz. And then it starts dropping off a cliff just over 1,000 hertz, and it, goes, uh, and it drops down, if I'm reading this correctly, he's down 30 dB between 1,000 hertz and 10,000 hertz. And uh, that is a huge drop. I think all of these acoustical panels in this small room are actually absorbing too much audio. You know, totally dead room. You know, not putting panels in the right places creates problems, just like a room that's all hard surfaces. My second thought is that you know he's he said his uh, rear speakers are up high, uh, and I think he needs to get them down closer to his ear level. I mean, ideally, you want. The speakers all the speakers the tweeters and all the speakers if they're designed that way to be at your ear level and pointing towards your head because right now they are up high and pointing at each other which definitely puts the surround sound channels behind him but i think it creates a lot of problems because he's going to get first order reflections not just from the sidewall but from the ceiling you know if i'm reading this right he's got like you know eight and a half nine foot high ceiling so his rears are way too high up uh, unless they're actually pointed at his head but if he, they are pointed at his head, then he's looking at, like, three gnarly first-order reflections with them buried in those corners. Right. I would also say the other thing is, is, in a lot of cases, you want to toe in or turn the speakers so that they face the king chair, the sweet spot, the queen chair, the primary listening position. Because most speakers aren't actually designed to be—I uh, mean, some are, but most speakers are designed to be towed in towards the listener, not, you know, perpendicular to the wall they're sitting in front of. I've got some follow-up questions for him, which is like, you know, what kind of acoustic panels or what kind of acoustic panels they are and where they're, how they're deployed, uh, you know, are any on the ceiling? I want to verify that the mic was in his seat when he was reporting. And I also think this is a, a great opportunity for him to download Room EQ Wizard and to look at some of the guides on that because Room EQ Wizard is a free piece of software that's designed to help you make your room sound better. Uh, I think it's a good idea (laughs) that he start experimenting with that. But I I suspect he's just got, he needs to kind of tweak his speaker placement and he probably needs to target exactly where that acoustic material is so he gets the best effect out of it and he doesn't just wipe out all the high-end audio in it. Um, I've
1: seen a lot of money spent on very, quote-unquote, well-designed rooms that in the mm -hmm. end weren't nearly as impressive as they should have been. Yeah, In some cases, it had a lot to do with simply trying to make it a perfect room. And they they almost took it too far. Whereas it would have been better, I think, just to, given the budget and given the results, you know, start with it empty and then add exactly what you need and don't overkill with it. And also having speaker position be one thing that is maybe the easiest to take care of is Uh a great place to start in terms of doing some experimentation. Right. There's a lot that could be done by simply getting everything on the same listening plane, so to speak, making sure that's how it's actually configured within the AVR. Because if if you're putting the speaker up that high, you may as well tick that off as not an actual rear channel anymore, but some sort of a surround speaker. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe that would end up sounding better if you absolutely can't move that into perhaps a better location. Yeah.
0: Some food for thought there. And it's uh, good for everyone. And I got to correct myself. I said it was 709 square feet. It's 709 cubic feet. The room itself is actually seven and a half by 11 feet, which means it is, it's like an 80 square foot room. I really feel like he's probably got more acoustical treatment in there than he needs. And uh, so we will communicate via email and I will let you guys know how it evolves. But yeah, you can over dampen a room and uh, that can create problems. Totally. Quick note, I had no idea that uh, Ghibli Fest was an a every-year thing now, uh, so if you are a fan of the movies uh, like Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle or Castle in the Sky or My Neighbor Totoro, go to GhibliFest.com, G-H-I-B-L-I-F-E-S-T.com, because they if you want to actually see those in a real theater with other people, uh, you can do that. Uh, I thought I'd miss Spirited Away, but it looks like it's going to be playing November 20th. So check your area and find out when these movies are being scheduled. Because in theory, it's like October 3, 4, and 6 for Spirited Away and the end of October for Howl's Moving Castle and the beginning of November for Castle in the Sky and the beginning of December for My Neighbor Totoro. But different areas are getting these movies at different times. So That's really cool. It's an opportunity to share your love for the anime. With like-minded individuals. <laughs> it's a fest. Get your fest on. Get your fest on. Sit in a room and be happy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Hey, I recently completed a standard dynamic range and an HDR calibration of the classic JVC rs 540 That was one of oh, their wow. premium projectors circa late 2017 it came out. Uh, this person had just installed a new lamp module and we were letting mm-hmm. that, basically break in for about 50 hours or so and then we went ahead and did it up and i have to say amazing sdr quality in terms of accuracy of things like gamma and color it's just spot on when that thing dials right in and i have to say pretty damn good hdr for a quote-unquote older projector thanks to that wide color filter built in plus superb contrast being one of the lamp-based jvc projectors that's even going toe-to-toe and in some cases exceeding the performance of their brand new laser-based systems. But still, yeah, there's a reason people love JVCs for a dedicated room, and that was quite the pleasing. I really, (laughs) really enjoyed that, taking a look at that. And using, uh, actually ended up using some of JVC's own calibration software for that, and it actually works with relatively affordable equipment, and it becomes a little more difficult if you actually want to do verification, but there is some built right into the software itself. Anyway, I'm not going to tell you to run out there and do the data connection to your JVC projector and start experimenting with software you may not be familiar with. But I'm surprised it's there and it seems to work pretty well. (laughs) If you want to take a risk, yes, you can. You can put in your serial number and download the software. Oh! For anyone that works on a JVC projector, one thing to keep in mind if you use JVC's calibration software, it will overwrite factory information in the projector that cannot be recovered save for an automatically saved file that occurs when you first use the software. When you first connect the software and do a calibration on that projector, it will immediately download that default for that specific projector. And if you want to ever get the projector back to factory default, you can't just do it through a menu at that point. You actually have to reload that file back into the projector and then go from there. So don't lose that file. It's saved automatically. Just make sure you like email it to yourself or however you do your backups. But that's one not to lose and uh, at least not lose track of just in case you need to revert back to true factory calibration.
0: There you have it, people. Yeah. Tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at AVXL if you want to talk to us on the Twitters. Or, as always, you can email us, askinavxl.com, with your questions. Your questions help guide us into figuring out what to cover. So please, 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 please please email us, askinavxl.com. Even better, become patrons of the show and uh, help support the show and get some extra perks. Patreon.com slash avxl is the place to go do that. You know, and if you are a patron, thank you so much. Your monthly contributions make the show possible, and we appreciate that. And hey, if you need a hashtag, hashtag AskAVXL works just fine. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Herron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.